Before we begin our study of God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help and guidance during this time. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in, in the same way that you revealed yourself to Moses on the mount, we ascribe back to you that you are the compassionate and gracious God, the God who is abounding in steadfast love and truth, forgiving sin, iniquity, and transgressions. Yet you're also the just God, the holy God, the God who cannot even look upon sin. Lord, we thank you that you have ordained and designed a way for us guilty rebels, estranged from you, alienated from you, to be reconciled to you, to be adopted into your family, to be able to call you Abba Father. What love, what amazing grace. And Lord, tonight as we come to the, the study of the text of scripture, Lord, just another an expression of your grace to us, your revealed word. And we pray for your spirit's help and illumination during this time of study, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to behold glorious realities from the word of God. Lord, transform our lives more into the image of our Savior who is so clearly displayed in our text this evening. For his glory we pray, amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me and your copy of God's word to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, this evening we have the privilege of beginning our verse-by-verse -verse study through the Upper Room Discourse. And as you're turning there in your Bible, I want to introduce you to a story in the life of a man that many of you might be familiar with. The man's name is D.L. Moody, the most influential evangelist of the 19th century on the American continent. Moody began working as a young lad at Holton Shoe Store, which was owned by his uncle. And his Sunday school teacher paid him a visit to that shoe store where he proclaimed the gospel to Moody, to which Moody repented and believed in Christ. Moody left his hometown in Massachusetts and relocated to Chicago, where he continued in the shoe business. Soon thereafter, he abandoned the shoe business in the pursuit of full-time ministry. In the end, God used Moody in such a way that he would become the most influential evangelist of the 19th century. And Moody would host Bible conferences in his hometown that people from all across the globe would travel to to attend. In one specific year in the late 1800s, there was a large group of pastors that came across the Atlantic from England to visit. The lodging for these conference attenders, these pastors, was in a local Bible school there in Massachusetts. And as was the custom for these European pastors, at nighttime, as they drifted off to sleep, they laid their shoes outside of their room, expecting for a servant to polish and shine the shoes in the hours of the night. As Moody wandered the halls of that Bible school late in the evening, praying for the attendees of this Bible conference, he came across these shoes laying outside of the pastor's doors. So Moody, Moody consulted a couple of his students concerning this peculiar dilemma, to which the students offered no help. And without speaking a word, without any voice of complaint or grumbling, Moody gathered and collected the shoes 
and retired to his own personal quarters where he personally washed and shined these pastor's shoes. Moody told no one what he had done and the only reason that we're privy to such an account, such an illustrious picture of humility and love is because someone walked into his quarters that evening to which we now have access to the story. And when the European pastors opened their doors the next morning, lo and behold, their shoes had been cleansed and shined and polished without any of them any wiser for who had performed such a task. Here in this story, we have an account of the, the greatest, the most influential evangelist of the 19th century performing such an act of humility and service to these fellow Christians that simply mirrors and reflects the, the image that we come to this evening in our text in John chapter 13. However, while in the account of Moody, you have a man of notable reputation serving his fellow peers, mere fellow men. Tonight, in John chapter 13, we see the King of Kings, the Lord of glory himself taking the position of the lowest of servants. It's in the paragraph that we come to this evening that we behold the incomparable love and humility of the Savior for his own. So if you're taking down notes there on your notepad or in your phone, if you want a title for this evening's message, you can title it, The Incomparable Love and Humility of the Savior. This episode in John chapter 13 serves to teach us many lessons, among which is the necessity of spiritual cleansing that is accomplished by Jesus, along with the necessity of emulating, imitating the love and humility of the Savior in your life. So how does this episode transpire for us? How does it unfold in the text? Well, this evening, to guide our study, I want to study this account, verses 1 through 17, under three stages. Three stages that demonstrates the love and the humility of the Savior for his own. I'll give you the, the stages, the headings that we'll use to guide our study at the outset. We'll mention them again, but just so you have a brief roadmap of where we're going. First, we're going to look at the undergirding motivations of the Savior. The undergirding motivations of the Savior then we'll look at the unparalleled demonstration of the Savior. And finally, as we end our evening, we'll look at the unmitigated explanation of the Savior. Again, we'll come across those in our study. But before we look at these stages together, I want to put before your eyes the glorious text that we're going to be studying this evening. So if you would, look, at me with, look with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 13 as I read the entirety of our text. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. These are the words of the Apostle John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and this is what he writes. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter 
He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you, should, that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And the first stage that I want us to study tonight in our text is the undergirding motivations of the Savior. The undergirding motivations of the Savior in verses 1 through 3. But before we begin to look at the undergirding motivations, we must place ourselves within the flow and the structure of the Gospel of John. We must not just parachute into the Upper Room Discourse in John 13, 1. We must understand how this book unfolds. And so after the prologue that ranges from chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 1, verse 18, we have a section that has been titled the Book of Signs, which ranges from the 19th verse of the first chapter all the way through the end of the 12th chapter. And it's in these chapters, the first portion of the book of John, that John provides demonstrations, signs that validated and demonstrated the messianic claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus was the one who had turned the water into wine. Jesus was the one who had cleansed the temple from those who were defiling it. Jesus was the one who had healed the lame and the sick. Jesus was the one who had fed the multitudes with the meager provisions of the loaves and fish in John chapter 6. And ultimately, Jesus is the one who raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And the book of signs concludes with this condemnation of unbelief in chapter 12, verses 37 through 38. Look back at chapter 12 with me. In verse 37, we read these words. These might be some of the saddest words that you could read. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. And this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So here, as we come to chapter 13, Jesus turns his attention, his focus away from the lost sheep of the house of Israel and he directs his ministry and his teaching to his own chosen disciples. And John begins chapter 13 by providing an important detail as to the timing of these events. He says that this occurred before the feast of the Passover. And the Passover was an event of such great significance in the life of the sons of Israel. It commemorated, it remembered and reflected upon the mighty deliverance and redemption that Yahweh had accomplished by bringing the sons of Israel out of Egypt 
with his mighty hand. In other words, when we come to our text this evening, we are in the Thursday night of the Passion Week. The week that has been characterized by long days of ministry and teaching within the precincts of Jerusalem and the other districts surrounding. But now, now the Savior withdraws to the presence of his disciples. And as we analyze and study these first three verses of John chapter 13, I want to direct your attention to two undergirding motivations of the Savior. Two undergirding motivations of the Savior. And the first motivation that I want us to look at this evening is the love of Christ. The love of Christ. We see in verse 1, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The hour here in verse 1 is the typical Johannine expression that referred to the ultimate climax of Jesus' incarnational mission. His crucifixion, his resurrection, and ultimately his ascension to the Father. You see, earlier in John's gospel, the hour had not yet arrived. John chapter 2, John chapter 7, John chapter 8, the hour was still yet future. And yet here as we come to chapter 13, the hour has dawned. It was not something that was in the distant future, but it was right there looming on the doorstep, right within the direct sights of the Savior. And notice how John directs the eyes of our heart to the love of Christ for his own in the first verse. That word for loved is familiar with you. It's the verb form of agape, agapao. And one lexicon describes this word as being the self-sacrificial love for someone based on a sincere appreciation and a high regard. But what makes this love so amazing is the subject of this love. You see here in verse 1, it's Jesus who loved his own. Jesus is the subject of this love and the object is his disciples, his sheep. Christian, I want to ask you where you sit this evening. How often do you meditate upon the love of Christ for his own? I mean, is that something that fills your thoughts throughout the day? Or is it just something that comes to your mind when we're talking about these things? Or does this truly compel your life, motivate your life? Let's get more personal. How often do you think about the love of Christ for you? Personally, individually. If you are his own, if you are his disciple, if you are of his fold, he loves you and takes delight in you. Do you want encouragement to face the fears and the worries of this world? Do you want strength to overcome the trials and the tribulations that you will face? Brothers and sisters, you must contemplate, you must meditate, you must muse over the love of Christ for you. Two chapters later in John chapter 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his own. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one has died for all, and he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised on their behalf. 
Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Revelation 1.5, to him who loved us and released us from our sins by his blood. From cover to cover, the love of Christ saturates every page of the New Testament. And notice that the text continues to say that Jesus loved his own. And suggested based upon this word in verse one, but I would submit to you that it's best to consider this expression to signify that Jesus loved his, he loved his own to the uttermost to the maximum extent. In other words, there was nothing lacking in Jesus' love for his own. As we come to verse two, it's in the background of this glorious night with Jesus and his disciples in the backdrop of Jesus loving his own that we see that Satan has his own. Judas. The devil, wicked and cunning adversary that he was, is again at work to thwart, to divert the messianic mission of Jesus. Yet this didn't take Jesus by surprise. Earlier in John's gospel, in John chapter 6, responding to the disciples, Jesus says, did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is the devil? No, he met Ju- now he met Judas, the son of Simon, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. As this episode unfolds through the first 17 verses of chapter 13, the love of Christ for his own is on full display. And I want you to consider the fact that as Jesus goes to his disciples, Judas is still present. You see, Judas does not leave the upper room until later in chapter 13. So as Jesus comes to the disciples, undoubtedly Judas was amongst the ones that Jesus stooped down to such a level to wash his feet. Now Jesus has a special, a particular love for his own, no doubt. But there is a more general common love that is designated for all people. I mean, we see this in Matthew chapter 5. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. God loved the world, John says earlier in his gospel. So we see the love of Christ on full display in these first two verses. But a second undergirding motivation that I want you to behold in verse three in particular is the unmatched humility of Christ. The humility of Christ. Look at verse three with me. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Now, the word humility does not appear in our text, but I want you to notice that Jesus was not ignorant of his exalted status. Jesus knew that God the Father had entrusted all things into his capable hands. He knew that he had eternally existed in perfect communion with the triune Godhead from eternity past and that he had come on his mission to redeem his own from their sins. And he knew that shortly he'd be returning to the Father to to bask in the glory that he had before the world was. It is in light of this knowledge, not despite of it, that Jesus takes upon himself the servant's towel to wash the disciples' feet. 
I mean, can you think of greater humility, greater condescension? Jesus existing in the very form of God, Philippians 2, 6. The very radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his nature, Hebrews 1, 3. Is soon about to gird himself with the servant's towel. Undoubtedly, you've heard the phrase that a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, you have a portrait here that is painted in the upper room that is given verbal expression by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2. If you've ever been to an art gallery, you know kind of what it looks like. You travel around and you see these majestic artworks hanging there or displayed there. And generally, there's either a sign, a label of something that gives a description to what the artwork's about, whether that's the title, the the painter, the sculptor, whatever the case is, it provides a description of what is there on display. And in the same way, what we have here in John chapter 13 is the beautiful portrait, the majestic masterpiece that is painted for us to see. And yet Paul in Philippians 2 gives us the the verbal demonstration, the verbal expression, the sign that points to what is taking place. And you know the words that I'm referring to in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this attitude amongst yourselves, which was also in Christ, who, though, although he existed in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thomas Goodwin, we mentioned him on Sunday, his quote from his book, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth, kind of provides the, the title for our summer series. But he says later in that same book, commenting on this verse, he says, When he was in the midst of all of those great thoughts of his approaching glory and of the sovereign estate which he was to be in, he then took water in a towel and washed his disciples' feet. These undergirding motivations here in the first three verses provide the foundation for the episode that is about to unfold before our eyes. And as the text shifts from verse 3 to verse 4, it transitions from the heart and the mind of the Savior to the outward actions of the Savior. So it's in the second stage, ranging from verse 4 through verse 11, that I want us to look at the unparalleled demonstration of the Savior. The unparalleled demonstration of the Savior. And I want us to proceed through this text by studying two specific features to help us kind of format this text and have a greater comprehension and understanding of it. And the first feature that I want us to look at is the visible expression. The visible expression. We see this take place in verses 4 through 5. John records in verse 4, Jesus got up from supper and he laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he, that is Jesus, poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Use your sanctified imagination here. Here is the Lord of glory in the midst of the solitude of the upper room with his disciples. And he rises to his feet. The disciples' eyes are piercing him. 
No one makes a sound. The disciples wait with bated breath as to what is about to transpire. And verse 4 tells us that Jesus took the servant's towel and he girded himself with it. The donning of a servant's towel, the, the girding of oneself with a servant's towel was never performed by a superior on behalf of one of an inferior party. You can almost hear the pin drop in the upper room as Jesus goes to the corner of the room and begins to pour water into this basin. Now, before we proceed any further in our study of this text, it's important that we have an appreciation and understanding of, of what foot washing was in the first century context and its significance. You see, the action of our Lord might not have the same weight that it would have had upon the disciples in the upper room or upon the original readers of the Gospel of John. But in the land of ancient Israel, foot washing was an essential need. You see, the roads of the ancient world that crisscrossed were dusty. And as one would travel from their quarters to the house of another, they would gather dust that would combine together with the sweat of their feet which would form this combination of dirt and dust and mud and grime. And the footwear of the first century is not the same that we have today. They wore sandals without socks. And upon arrival to a house that you were attending, whether that be a celebration, a house slave would remove the sandals of the traveling guest. The feet would then be washed by pouring water over them. And the slave would then rub the feet, the dirty, mucky feet, and dry them with a the towel. And in the first century milieu, a person of a higher status, a higher rank, a, a higher position in life would never perform this task for one of a lower station. Let's bring it to our, our context. The president would never stoop to a level to wash the feet of a mere citizen. You see, this humble, lowly, menial task was reserved for the lowest of slaves. In fact, in later Jewish literature, it is even expressed that even Jewish slaves were not allowed to perform this task because of the stigma that was associated, the lowliness of this task. Only Gentile slaves were required or mandated to perform this task. Yet the text tells us that the Savior of the world, the creator of all mankind, stoops to the level of the lowest slave to perform the most meaningful, menial task that was befit for the lowest servant. I mean, this is a marvel of all marvels. Humility. What grace. Tells us that 
And in the original Greek in verse 6, the emphatic pronoun is included to signify the astonishment and the bewilderment of the disciple Peter. Literally, the text reads this way. Lord, do you yourself my feet wash? I mean, this is similar to the expression that was offered by John the baptizer in Matthew chapter 3. Do you remember the account? Jesus comes to John as he's baptizing in the Jordan. And John responds in verse 14, says, Do you come to me? I have need to be baptized by you. Well, at this question of Peter, we're giving no indication that the Lord halts from the process. The dialogue continues. And Jesus responds to the bewildered disciple in verse 7, saying that what I do to you now, you do not realize, but you will understand hereafter. Well, that must cause us to ask the question, hereafter what? When will this disciple come to understand this profound spiritual reality? And to this question, we answer that it was after the crucifixion, after the resurrection of the Messiah, that Peter comes to clearly ascertain this truth. And this is clearly evidence because if you read 1 Peter, in 1 Peter 5, he says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. The Greek word for clothe yourselves used there in 1 Peter was the designated expression of a servant girding himself with a towel, borrowing from the imagery of the upper room. And our beloved disciple, Peter, in verse 8, he responds with his great urgency and insistence that he was so prone for. In verse 8, he says, never shall you wash my feet. In the original, there's two negatives that begin this phrase. It's like, never, never will you wash my feet. And in Greek, two negatives don't make a positive, but rather serve to intensify the negative response. So in other words, Peter could not have been more forcefully and indisputably denying that the Lord should wash his feet. If this isn't enough, the text literally reads into the ages at the end. The ESV, the NAS don't reflect this fact, but the LSV does with that emphatic ever. So what Peter is saying here in verse 8, he says, No, never, not in a million years will you wash my feet, Lord. You, the one whom I have confessed to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, you will not wash my feet. Well, the dialogue continues to march on, and we see Jesus respond in verse 8. Jesus says, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. The expression washing is a common biblical metaphor that was used to signify the washing away or the cleansing of sins. Think about that great penitential psalm of David after he had sinned so grievously with Bathsheba and Nathan. The prophet comes to him in verse 2 of Psalm 51. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives a vice list, a whole host of vices and sins piled on top of one another. And then in verse 7, he says, but such were some of you. That used to define your life, but such were some of you. But you were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And cleansing is not only a biblical metaphor, but it even comes across to us 
in the words of the hymns of the Christian church. William Cooper, the great 18th century English hymn writer who was a co-laborer with John Newton, penned the words to the hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood. And if you remember in the second stanza, the stanza reads, The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day. And there though I, as vile as he, wash all my sins away. Jesus says here, if I do not wash you, that is to say, if you do not undergo the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, you have no share with me, no inheritance, no part with me. And I want you to notice from our text who it is that does the washing. The text does not say, if you do not wash yourself, nor does the text say, if we cooperate together in performing this washing, but the text says, if I do not wash you, Jesus is the exclusive and the sole agent of this washing. Brothers and sisters, this is sovereign grace. You contribute nothing to this cleansing, but the very sin that makes this cleansing and washing absolutely necessary. Well, how is this cleansing accomplished? John gives us an insight in his first chapter of his first epistle when he says that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. And then later in verse 9, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Revelation says he has released us from our sins by his blood. In other words, Jesus accomplishes the spiritual cleansing of his disciples through his own substitutionary, vicarious death on Calvary's cross. If you have not been released from your sins by his blood, if you are still dead in your sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2.1, if you have not been washed by the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus says you have no share with him, no part with him, no inheritance with him. He's not your friend. He's not your savior. What he has accomplished in redemption does not belong to you. You have no share in it. But I ask you this evening, why do you continue to spurn the rejection and reject the offer of Christ? It says if he comes to you and offers this cleansing in full, the certificate of debt nailed to the cross, wiped away forever, and you continue to believe that Jesus is important, but I can make up for what he lacks by my good behavior, by my righteous acts. Friends, I want you to notice the absolute necessity of this washing in verse 8. Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. You, where you sit, must experience this washing. And this washing can be yours, can come to you by repenting from your sins, by turning and forsaking your sins, and turning to the sole agent of this cleansing, Jesus Christ, who accomplished this cleansing by his death on Calvary's cross. There's no other way. There's no other fountain by which guilty sinners can be plunged beneath for the forgiveness of their sins. Let 
while this spiritual lesson that the Lord teaches in verse 8 is absolutely essential for us to grasp, as the text unfolds, it's clear that Peter still does not get the hint. Peter is still viewing the foot washing merely as that. <laughs> verse 9 says, Lord, if, if that's the case, wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Leave not a speck. Leave not one spot. And Jesus continues in his spiritual lesson in verse 10. He says, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Don't you love our Lord's response? He's so compassionate, so gracious. He's so patient with Peter, just as he is with us. But what is Jesus saying in the statement? What is he saying when he says that he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean? Well, what Jesus is saying is that the person who has experienced the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3.5, the person who has been spiritually cleansed from his sins once for all, has no need for a secondary, a subsequent cleansing that Christ accomplished at the moment of salvation. I've referenced Shylin here before. I love Shylin. There's a song, Immutable by him. He says, even though I am being sanctified, I can never be any more justified. You see, atonement has been made in full. The certificate of debt that you accrued has been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. The Father's wrath has been completely and perfectly satisfied once for all. But this text does not mean that the Christian does not continue to sin. Christian perfectionism has no biblical warrant or basis. You see, we all continue to sin in word, in thought, in deed, in action. We commit sins of omission and commission. We don't love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves, and on and on. And yet for the believer... We come not to God for judicial cleansing or forensic cleansing, for we have been bathed, Jesus says. All sins, past, present, and future, have been cast as far as the east is from the west. They've been cast into the depths of the sea. However, as believers, we come to God for fatherly forgiveness when we sin against him. To use the imagery of Jesus, he who has been bathed no, only needs his feet to be washed. So as we, as we go about our daily affairs in life in a Genesis 3 fallen world, still having this unredeemed part of us, this flesh that wages war against the spirit, we still continue to acquire the dirt of this world. And we still need to approach God for fatherly forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I want you to notice in verse 10 what Jesus says. He says that the one who has been bathed, the purified disciple, is completely clean. Not partially clean, not most of the way clean, but completely clean. Our Kent Hughes commentator says, as justified believers, Jesus' followers do not need a radical new cleansing. 
but rather need a daily cleansing from the contaminating effects of sin. But before we depart, I want you to notice that last clarifying addendum that Jesus offers in verse 10. He says, but not all of you. But not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Again, I want you to use your sanctified imagination here because as Jesus turns, he turns away from talking directly to Peter to speaking to all of the disciples. When he says, not all of you, it's a plural pronoun. He's not just talking to Peter. He's talking to all the disciples. I mean, the disciples were not privy to the information of who the betrayer was. Jesus was, and we see that clearly. We as the readers are, we see that clearly as John's gospel unfolds. But the, the disciples were not privy to this information. I mean, can you imagine the angst that gripped their hearts? Is it I? Jesus just said in verse 8, it is a necessity that I wash you, that you be clean, and yet not all of you are clean. And the stage closes and gives way to our third and our final stage of this episode that I want us to look at this evening, which ranges from verse 12 through verse 17, and it is the unmitigated explanation of the Savior. While Jesus has just taught a profound spiritual lesson, the teacher is still teaching. Class is still in session. In these final verses, they flow under a question and answer format with Jesus asking a rhetorical question in verse 12 and then answering this rhetorical question, verses 13 through 17. And this was a typical way of a rabbi or a teacher of this time period to generate thoughtful dialogue, a learning opportunity. And you notice after Jesus takes his garments, reclines again at the table, he asks the disciples, he says, do you know what I have done to you? Do you understand what has just taken place in your midst? In verse 13, Jesus continues and he says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. The title teacher, it was a common designation that was ascribed to rabbis of this time. But the title Lord goes beyond what normally would have been applied or ascribed to a rabbi. And Jesus here affirms that these designations are accurate. He says, you are right. You have correctly spoken, for so I am. They are correct in identifying and addressing the Lord Jesus Christ as the teacher and the Lord par excellence. But verses 12 and 13 really build up together to get to Jesus' point in verse 14. And he makes his point abundantly clear in verse 14. Look at it with me. He says, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You see, when Jesus did the foot washing, he taught a spiritual lesson on the nature of the necessity of being cleansed by Jesus. But that is not the only implications that this account has on the disciples and on us. Jesus, the teacher in the Lord, demonstrated the greatest manifestation, the greatest display of love and humility in condescending to the station of washing the disciples' feet. And in verse 14, you see that word ought. You see, this is a moral obligation that is upon all followers of Jesus Christ. The word ought is a word of moral obligation, of duty to Christ. 
followers of Jesus, those who believe in him to be the teacher and the Lord, should ever be willing to cultivate a readiness to perform the lowliest and the most menial acts of service to other Christians. I love what J.C. Ryle says at this point in the text. J.C. Ryle captures this truth by saying, if the only begotten Son of God, the King of kings, did not think it beneath him to do the humblest work of a servant, there is nothing which his disciples should think themselves too great or too good to do. But we must ask ourselves, are we morally obligated to wash one another's feet? Is the church obligated, commanded by her head, the Lord Jesus Christ, to continue to enact the practice of foot washing? Well, some have concluded yes in the history of the church and made foot washing an ordinance alongside the Lord's table and baptism. But it's at this point that we need to understand the difference between what is culturally appropriate and appropriated and what has continual, eternal, abiding significance. We mentioned earlier that foot washing was an essential need in the time of the first century. And foot washing today has a less significance as generally as you walk around, you're not going on too many dirt roads unless you're from Missouri or somewhere in the backwoods. Generally, we're walking around on paved roads. We're driving around. We wear closed-toed shoes. Foot washing is not a necessity. When you walked in this evening, you were not greeted by our greeting team and Joe with them on their knees with a wash basin. Don't get any ideas. A similar cultural custom that was enforced at this time was the greeting of one another with a holy kiss. We see Paul issue this in um, Romans 16, 16, and Peter in 1 Peter 5, 14. Men greeted men and women greeted women with an outward demonstration of affection for one another. And this was culturally appropriate during the first century. Yet this evening, as you walked into the building at Roots, as you embraced your friend, your brother or sister in the faith, most likely you did not embrace this expression. Therefore, in the same way, the custom of foot washing should not be continued in our contemporary age. And if you don't take my reasoning for it, let's hear from the Lord in verse 15. The Lord says in verse 15, For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Jesus says that he's given an example for the disciples to copy. The Greek word for example is a pattern. It is a, an example is a copy for moral instruction. You see, the disciples should follow his example. They should pattern their lives after what the Lord has just done. Not sacramentally, not literally washing one another's feet, but by being willing to perform the most lowly acts of service to one another in imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than merely washing one another's feet, Jesus is saying, that the display of such love and humility and the service of one another should mark the disciples' attitude. They should adopt the servant position and be willing to exercise such love and humility pattern after the Lord. But let's direct the attention to you. What does it mean for you to adopt and to embrace this mentality, this mindset, this disposition. 
Well, maybe it's going out of your way to intentionally and deliberately serve another brother or sister in the faith. Maybe it's diverting from the normal conversations and the, the friend groups that you spend time with and go to the person that might be sitting by themselves. Ask them how they're doing. Ask them what they're learning in their quiet time. Ask them how you can pray for them. Maybe it looks like going to the countryside webpage and going to the serve tab and seeing the current needs that exist within our church and being willing to perform those out of imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe it looks like cooking a new meal for a mom. Maybe it looks like going to mow someone's grass. that can't. Maybe it looks like going to visit someone that is a shut-in, that can't attend church on Sunday mornings. Listen, these are just all mere suggestions of what this can practically look like in your life. But the Lord calls his followers to adopt the same mindset that he displayed here in the upper room. The mindset of love and humility and being willing to perform the lowest acts of service that most people shy away from. Pray that the Lord would give you wisdom and awareness to recognize these opportunities that exist all around you. Pray that the Lord would give you a joy and a willingness to follow in the Savior's footsteps. Memorize and store in your mind and heart passages such as Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Memorize Mark 10, 45, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The duty and the obligation are yours and mine today. Just as our Lord and teacher did, we also are called to do. And as Jesus argues here from the greater to the lesser, he provides a perfect illustration in verse 16. Look at it with me. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Jesus offers one of his truly, truly statements, indicating that what is here contained is of vital importance and significance to your life. Jesus directs our attention and the thoughts of our heart to the relationship that exists between the, the Lord and the master and the slave, to the one who sins and commissions one and the one who is sent. And this isn't the only time our Lord uses this illustration during his earthly ministry. Even later in the Upper Room Discourse in John 15, 20, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. You see, Jesus teaches that if the disciples, Lord and teacher, his master was willing to go to the greatest extent to perform the most lowly task, the most lowly service that was only reserved for the, the lowest of slaves, then his followers should not view these opportunities for lowly service with disdain, but they ought to emulate their master by performing these acts of service. In verse 17, Jesus concludes this section by saying, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I want you to notice that it's not just sufficient to merely be a partaker of the events that transpire in the upper room. To be an observer, a witness of these events. You see, it's not just sufficient to merely know these things, to know of the love and the humility of Christ if it does not impact your life. It's the one that puts these spiritual lessons to practice that is blessed. And this word blessed is the word that is used by our Lord in the Beatitudes in the, the Sermon on the Mount. And some people will say that this word merely means to be happy. 
Happy are you, blessed are you. And it is true that occasionally this word does carry that significance. But here in John chapter 13 and the Beatitudes, this word describes one who is in the enviable state of being the recipient of divine favor, of having the face of God shine upon him. John Calvin comments on this verse saying, knowledge does not deserve to be called true unless it leads believers to conform themselves to their head. So how are we to respond? How are we to respond to this glorious display of love and humility, of grace and condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, as we close, I want to provide several applicatory lessons that you must learn as a result from this passage of study. First lesson that you must learn is that you must be spiritually cleansed. Jesus says in verse 8, If I have not washed you, you have no part with me. Have you been washed by the blood of the Lamb? Have you experienced the washing, regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit? A second essential lesson that you must learn is that you must be willing to plunge yourself neath the same fount for daily forgiveness. We have been forensically and judicially cleansed once for all, but we still daily come to Christ for continual forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Do you regularly confess your sins to the Lord? Is your life patterned and marked out by a continual, a habitual repentance? The first thesis and the 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed to the castle door there in Wittenberg says this, when our Lord and master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Third, I would encourage you to marvel at and revel in the wonderful love and humility of the Savior. Ultimately, Jesus did not humble himself to the point of washing the disciples' feet. The Apostle Paul tells us that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And lastly, you must emulate the Savior by being willing to perform the most menial and lowly task in the service of another. You must be willing and cultivate a ready willingness to serve one another. This passage, this episode of the foot washing, teaches us of the incomparable love and humility of Jesus Christ the Savior. Would we, by God's grace, emulate and imitate such love and humility? In the words of Peter, would we clothe ourselves with humility towards one another? Would we, by God's grace, in the words of Paul, do nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own interest, but also for the interest of others? May God aid us by his grace in this endeavor. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this glorious text, such a masterpiece, such a beautiful portrait of the Savior's heart for his own, his incomparable love and humility on full display for us to grasp, to witness. Oh God, would such a vision, would such a text conform us more into that image? Would we be more loving, more humble? Would we be more willing, God, to do the lowly and menial task? Ultimately, God, we thank you that 
Christ not only humbled himself to an extent, to a point of washing the disciples' feet and no further, but that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. But God, you have promised, you have promised that you would exalt him and bestow upon him the name which is above all names so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of your name. Lord, would that be the attitude that we adopt? Would that be the confession of our life for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.